This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Endless Impossible, written and performed by Frank Burton. Endless Impossible will also be available as a book, the fourth in the Ragbag series. Buy a copy for each of your friends. You'll be the talk of the town. Later on, we'll enter the footnotes section. That's the optional extra content for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Let's continue with Endless Impossible. As it happened, Dennis's name didn't come up in conversation until a few weeks later. Jenna and I had lots of other things to talk about. We met up for drinks whenever we could. Then I got a job working nights in a hotel. Jenna would come and sit with me sometimes. Some nights we'd hang out there together all night just talking. It doesn't sound like much, but all things considered, they were some of the happiest nights of my life. One night at the hotel, I said, You remember I told you about my friend who went missing? Of course, she said. Dennis Gleeson, the comedy genius. How could I forget? Remember we kind of had that plan about finding out what happened to him? I've had some thoughts about that, she said. I've figured out a rough itinerary for the trip. Trip? Yes, the road trip. First, we'll call it Dennis's flat. Obviously, the phone's been disconnected, but there's still the possibility that he's there. Or at least, there could be some clues as to his whereabouts. Then, of course, we'll visit that former church. You've got the address, right? I do, I said, still catching my breath at the thought of actually going there. In my opinion, he's unlikely to still be there after all this time, unless Miss Angel actually forms her own commune. That's a real possibility, I said. Supposedly, that church was some kind of base for her and her followers. Remind me of the date, Jenna said thoughtfully. It's the 22nd, I said. Not today's date, Frankie. Miss Angel had a particular date in mind for when she, you know, returns to her home planet. I remember this one, I said, 17th of April 2002. So, three years from now, she said. I guess so. Any idea what she intends to do with all this time? These followers of hers still have years to wait until they realise they've been had. Maybe they won't realise. All Miss Angel has to do is disappear. She's already using a fake identity and has several more in the bank. As far as her followers are concerned, she'll be in outer space as good as her word. And then what? Supposedly that's their cue to spread Miss Angel's message of peace to the world. And what's Miss Angel getting from all this? No idea. World peace? Maybe that's genuinely her end goal. Nah, said Jenna. Why do you say that? Well, I haven't met her, Frankie, but clearly she's a psychopath. Psychopaths don't care about world peace unless it benefits them in some way. Surely world peace will benefit everyone. Still, there's easier ways of being self-serving, like exploiting your followers for cash. You don't think that's what she's up to, don't you? I wouldn't be surprised, I said, but I don't see how she'd manage to make much. She doesn't appear to be targeting the rich. Half the kids at my primary school are either unemployed or in prison now. Dennis hardly had a penny to his name. Clearly Miss Angel had researched him, so she'll have known this. She still seemed very keen on recruiting him. There must be more to it than that, said Jenna. Like what? I don't know. 
A week later, I'd taken three days off work so he could drive down to Devon via London. We hired a car. I'd passed my test a few months previously, but didn't have much experience, so Jenna covered most of the driving. She had a similar driving style to Dennis, narrating her every thought while paying a casual level of attention to the road, as though the windscreen were a silent TV in the corner of a pub. How's about this? she said. What do we know about Miss Angel's followers? What do they have in common? I know absolutely nothing about her followers, I said. I haven't met any of them. Let's focus on what we do know. That kid you mentioned in your class, the one who seemed very much taken with Miss Angel's ideas. Can't remember his name, I said. He was one of the smart kids, right? Top of the class. Yeah. And what do we know about Dennis? Lots, I said. What's his defining characteristic? He talks a lot. He's smart, said Jenna. Smart enough to write a book. Smart enough to win a journalism award. She researched him, right? She wanted him as part of her club, even in spite of the possibility of him exposing her scheme in a newspaper. She wanted Dennis because Dennis is part of a key demographic. He's intelligent. Surely an intelligent person would see right through her. Intelligent people fall for scams all the time, she said. They think they're smart enough not to be duped. From my experience, smart people are particularly prone to conspiracy theories or ghost stories or alien abductions. They'll present you with the evidence as though it's a peer-reviewed paper. These are the people Miss Angel's really after, smart but with a weakness for finely spun fairy tales. Why though? Why not just recruit the most gullible fool she can find? What's in it for her? She wants to make use of their skills. If she's managing to attract the right type of high IQ individual from a cross-section of society, there'll be a whole range of expertise at her disposal. This is all part of her plan. She's not gathering mindless followers. She's recruiting a nerd army. I squawked with laughter, clapping my hands together. <laughs> Excellent, I love that. A nerd army. As to what she hopes the nerd army will achieve on her behalf, I'm not too sure, Jenna added. Well, what would you do, I said, if you had access to an army of nerds who were willing to do your bidding? Good question, said Jenna seriously. Speaking as an academic, that would be a hell of a resource. Most likely I'd employ them as a research team. I don't think that would be Miss Angel's style, I said. The last thing she wants is to have people finding things out. True, said Jenna. Yes, I have absolutely no idea what she intends to do. I suppose that's what makes this so exciting. Thanks for coming with me, I said. Stop thanking me, she said firmly. The pleasure's all mine. This is going to be fun. Our trip to Dennis's home address went predictably enough. Dennis wasn't there. Someone else was. The man answered the door partway through a phone call. I tried to explain who we were and why we were there, but he just gestured for us to come inside. He led us up the steps to his one-room flat. A single bed, a wardrobe, a TV, a microwave and a kitchen sink appeared to be the entirety of this man's possessions. I imagined Dennis living here, surrounded by stacks of paperwork and scribbled notes. We stood on the carpet, waiting patiently for the flat's inhabitant to finish his call. Don't put me on hold, he barked, then sighed sitting himself on the bed. They put me on hold, he explained. What can I do for you? We're friends of Dennis Gleeson, I said. Who? I believe he lived here before you. Well, it's obviously not here, said the man. 
I was wondering if you'd been given a forwarding address. The man shook his head. The landlord mentioned the previous tenant stopped paying his rent and just left all of his stuff here. What happened to it all? Dennis's possessions? The man shrugged. They mentioned something about him having a wife or an ex, maybe. I guess it got sent to her. I could give you my landlord's number. Maybe they'll point you in the right direction. We took the number and gave it a call from the phone box down the street. We had to try three or four times before someone answered. Sorry to keep calling, I said. I'm a friend of one of your old tenants, Dennis Gleason. You have some irritating friends, remarked the voice. I laughed. Just kidding, they said. Good bloke, really. Like the sound of his own voice, but I'm guessing you know that already. You don't know what happened to him, do you? This is what I'm trying to find out. I was wondering if you have his ex-wife's address. Is that where all his stuff went? Most of it went of a tip, said the voice. I believe Mrs. Gleason kept hold of a box of paperwork in case it happened to be important. I'll dig her address out. One moment. Jenna pulled out a pen and jotted the address on the back of her hand. Thanks for your help, I said. No problem, said the voice. Do you let me know if you manage to find him? I'd love to know where he is and not just because he owes me a grand. To be fair, that's the main reason, but still, I liked him. So did I, I said, my voice wavering at my use of the past tense. Forty-five minutes later, we pulled up outside Mrs Gleason's place, a semi-detached house in a quiet suburban street. No car in the driveway, I said. Maybe she isn't home. Maybe she doesn't drive, said Jenna. Maybe it's both. Are you nervous, Frankie? Why would I be nervous? You're paying an unsolicited visit to your missing friend's ex-wife. I can see how that might be an awkward situation. Not for me. I'm happy to do the talking, she said. You can if you like, I said casually. Thanks, I added. I followed her up the garden path and watched her ring the bell. A woman answered the door. No, thank you, she said. Sorry, said Jenna. I don't have time right now. Oh, we're not salespeople, said Jenna with a smile. We're friends. I must confess I've read the Bible and didn't much care for it. We're friends of Dennis. The woman's mouth popped open wide and she blurted out an involuntary chuckle. Ha! Get lost, she said, and slammed the door. Jenna rang the bell again. The door opened a fraction. You'd better make this quick, said the woman. Sorry I snapped. I just wasn't expecting to hear that name this afternoon. Frankly, I was hoping never to hear it again. I'll be as fast as I can, said Jenna. You are Mrs Gleeson, I presume? Mrs Gleeson nodded. So, as you may have gathered, Mrs Gleeson, our friend has gone missing. We've been chatting with his old landlord. I understand there was a box of paperwork which he rescued from his flat. Funny you should say that, said Mrs Gleeson. I almost threw it out last week. It's still sitting by the back door. You can take it if you like. Save me a job. She disappeared, returning a moment later carrying a scruffy cardboard crate. She handed it to me. Thank you, I said. Hopefully this will help in finding him. It's literally the least I can do, she said. Also, said Jenna, I was wondering if anyone's actually reported our friend missing. Mrs Gleeson shrugged. You haven't reported it yourself? I asked. Why would I? I honestly hope he's dead. What makes you feel that way? I said, unable to resist. Get out of here, she said quietly. Sorry to ask, I said. If you must know, it might have something to do with him cancelling our family holiday so he could spend an entire summer hanging around with a bunch of sky-gazing hippies 
then invest our joint life savings into publishing a book about it without consulting me. That's for starters. Oh, I said. Oh, indeed. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to collect the kids from school. Oh, I said again. You have children? She laughed again, longer and harder this time. <laughs> oh, you're friends with the great Dennis Gleeson, are you? She cackled. I nodded. And the whole time you knew him, he didn't bother mentioning his son or his daughter. I don't think they came up, I muttered. Mrs Gleeson regained her composure, took a deep breath, and looked me squarely in the face. Just a thought, she said, but if I were you, I'd empty this box into the recycling and get on with your lives. Your choice, obviously. I stuck the box in the boot of the car. We headed into central London, having added an extra item onto our agenda, the offices of the newspaper whose editor I'd briefly spoken to a couple of years back. I had no idea if he still worked there, but it was worth a try. We were stuck in traffic for quite a long time, then couldn't find anywhere to park. Jenna dropped me outside and said she'd catch up with me later. As I entered the building, I couldn't help noticing how smartly everybody else was dressed. Here I was, a teenager in ripped jeans and a Tindersticks t-shirt, hoping to be taken seriously. Hopefully my attempt at a professional tone of voice would make up for my scruffy appearance. I'm an old friend of the editor, I explained to the receptionist. I don't have an appointment, but I hope you can make some time for me. My name's Frank Burton. I'm here to talk about Dennis Gleeson. I was told that the editor was in meetings for the rest of the day. I'm happy to wait, I said, if circumstances change. The day is almost over, the receptionist reminded me. I guess I won't have long to wait then, I said. Half an hour later, a man came out to greet me. He was smiling. Frank? he said. Are you? he confirmed his name. Come through, he said. I followed him through the half-empty newsroom to his office. What a nice surprise, he said. Would you like a coffee? Black, please, I said. Easier to identify than a glass of white wine. He roared with laughter. This was going very well. He returned a couple of minutes later with the coffees. So what can I do for you, Frank? he said. Well, first of all, I suppose I'd better apologise, I said. The last time we spoke, you offered me some help. I turned it down for some reason. The fact of the matter is, Dennis has disappeared. No one knows where he's gone. No need to apologise, he said. I liked Dennis a lot. He's a rare talent. The offer of help remains open. What can I do to assist? Are you sure you're a newspaper editor, I said. No offence, but people in your position have a certain reputation. He laughed again. Maybe we're not quite as evil as you've been led to believe. In any case, I'd be acting out of self-interest. If Dennis comes back from wherever he's gone, he can start working for me again. I'm assuming you haven't heard from him lately, I said. Not for years, he said. A couple of years before you wrote to me about him going missing, he went off to write that book of his. I never saw him again after that. He was still working though, wasn't he? Freelance? As far as I know, you mentioned yourself he was working on a story. That's where you assumed he'd gone. I'm following that up, I said. Last thing I heard, he was heading down to Devon investigating a con artist. So that's where we're going. Me and my friend are following his trail. It may not lead us anywhere, but... So what's the story? Who's the con artist? I don't think I should say, I said. Really? Potentially, this story is a very big deal. 
I don't know if Dennis has an arrangement with a different editor for the exclusive or anything. I see, he smiled. Intriguing. It really is, I agreed. Hopefully we can talk about it when Dennis turns up. In the meantime, it would be great if you could ask around for me. Has Dennis made contact with any of his former colleagues? Phone calls, emails, messages of any kind? Just to confirm he's still alive, if nothing else. Have you reported him missing to the police? Said the editor thoughtfully. Uh, no, I said. Why not? I'm not sure he'd want me to. Why wouldn't he? Because if his original plan has come to fruition, then he's not really missing at all. He's undercover. Undercover? For two whole years? My, my. I'd love to know if he actually does have a deal with a newspaper on this one. I've heard of two-year investigations, but a two-year undercover mission? Unprecedented. Always was a maverick, that one. Jenna was waiting for me outside, puffing on a cigar. How did it go? she said. He doesn't know anything, I said. He's going to ask around, but I don't know. Doesn't seem likely he'll find anything. Looks like we'd better drive to Devon then, doesn't it? Let's do it, I said. It was late night when we finally arrived. We checked into a hotel, not too far from the village where Miss Angel's church was located. What do you think happened? said Jenna, over breakfast the next morning. Where did Dennis go? I hate to say it, I said, but I strongly suspect Miss Angel brainwashed him. He's probably chanting in a field somewhere, reciting poems about Miss Angel's forthcoming voyage into outer space. Or he's working for her, said Jenna. Doing what? I don't know, but as I was saying the other day, it doesn't feel like she's gathering followers. She's recruiting staff. Dennis can write and by all accounts has the gift of the gab. If I was recruiting him to work for my cult, I'd place him in sales or PR. I don't think that would suit him. He likes being his own boss for a start. The joys of self-employment can be quickly forgotten about if the paycheck's big enough. So she's paying him a salary. With what? Where's she getting her money from? Maybe she's rich. If she's rich, why did she spend years working as a primary school teacher? Recruitment, you said so yourself. I shook my head wearily. None of this makes any sense. Let's put it this way, said Jenna. Con artists, like Miss Angel, prey upon the vulnerable. I don't know if you want to hear this, Frankie, but from what I've seen over the last couple of days, Dennis was exactly that. From his wife's point of view, the guy deliberately sabotaged his marriage and shunned his own kids in favour of living in that glorified cupboard, chucking away his life savings, racking up debts. It's a textbook midlife crisis. Then along comes Miss Angel, who tells him everything he's ever been taught is wrong and he should listen to her because she's from another planet and also happens to be extremely attractive. I don't know, I said. Crisis does that kind of things to people, Frankie. People have affairs, some turn to drink or drugs, some find religion, some find a hobby like watercolour painting or crown green bowls and find it's fulfilling enough to prevent the crisis from destroying their lives for good. Some go to therapy or have epic heart-to-hearts with their loved ones, about how they can live to see another day and be happy. And some join a cult, that's the way it goes. Maybe, I said, let's just see what we can dig up, eh? The church still looked like a church. Observing it from the outside, the building didn't appear to have been modernised in any way. 
the strips of green around the perimeter were sprouting weeds. There were a few houses a little way down the street with no sign of life in any of them. I could see why Miss Angel had chosen this location. From what I could see, it was pretty much a ghost town. We tried knocking on the door. All we got back was an echo. We wandered around the side of the building, looking up at the windows. There's probably a back entrance, said Jenna. Or one of those cottages attached to the side, you know, where the priests will have lived. Are you talking about breaking in? I said. What else is there to do? Dunno, I said. I was hoping they'd still be here. I looked up at the looming spire. I could hardly believe I was actually here, contemplating trespassing on Miss Angel's property. She's probably installed an alarm, I said. I turned to Jenna, but she disappeared round the corner. A moment later, a window opened, and she popped her head through. Keep up, Frankie, she said. The door's around that way. Wasn't it locked? I know a few tricks. Come on, check this out. Check what out? Just get yourself inside, you'll see. It occurred to me at that moment that I'd never set foot inside a church before. My parents weren't religious and had a tendency to recycle wedding invitations. I'd seen pictures of the inside of churches. They always intrigued me in a way, not enough to actually visit a church, but the thought was there. An easy-to-achieve item on the bucket list. Here was my chance to tick that box. What the hell? I said as I entered the room. I realise you're not supposed to say that sort of thing in a church, but clearly this wasn't a church. I'd never visited a homeless shelter either, but this is what I imagined one of them would look like. Rows of single mattresses and blankets on a hardwood floor. Abandoned bags, towels, items of clothing, dirty cups and plates. What the hell? I said again. Jenna picked up one of the cups from the floor and sniffed it. They've been gone a while, she said, but not too long. There's a mouldy bit of bread under that table, she said. That'll have been fresh about a month ago, I'd say. How do you know that? I used to experiment as a kid. I'd place bits of food on my bedroom windowsill and watch it rot. Ugh, I said. You never did stuff like that, she said. No. Good job you got a freak like me in your life then, isn't it? It is, I nodded. I counted the mattresses. Sixteen, I said. Sixteen people all sharing the same floor. They were here by choice, she said. Presumably they liked it. What were they actually doing here? No idea. Where did they go? Don't know. How come they've left all this random stuff here? I assume they didn't need to take it. They haven't even bothered to tidy up. Either they've left in a hurry for some reason, or... Maybe they're just slobs. Why are you so concerned about the mess anyway? It doesn't seem to fit somehow. Dennis and his new friends may well be slobs, but that's not Miss Angel's style. She seems like the sort of person who'd sweep the floor before abandoning her house. This is hardly a conventional house though, is it, Frankie? It's an old religious building, a pretty small one as these places go. It wasn't designed to house 16 people. What we're looking at here is a short-term solution. Miss Angel used this place to build up her, what did we call it? Nerd Army. Yes, that's where she housed her recruits until a better solution presented itself. As soon as they found themselves a better place to go, a proper house presumably, they up and left. Why bother cleaning up? They had no intention of returning. They took whatever possessions were important to them and left everything else lying around. 
That seems a fair assumption, I started to say, but didn't quite get to the end of the last word. Are you okay? she said. Instead of replying, I ran across the room to the main entrance. Hanging from a hook beside the large wooden door was a long beige trench coat. It's Dennis's, I shouted. Dennis's coat! I was afraid to reach out and touch it. A moment later, Jenna was standing beside me. She was holding my hand. The other one was shaking a little. Are you sure? she said quietly. He wore it all the time. This is good, right? This is what we came for. Evidence that Dennis was here. We're properly on the trail now, Frankie. We'll find him, yeah? Yeah. I lifted the coat gently off the hook. Then I tried it on. Jenna giggled. How do I look? I said. Like a thirties detective? <laughs> you look more like Tony Hancock, she laughed. Who's that? Really, Frankie? You need educating. Sure, another time. Just tell me if Tony Hancock is a compliment. Oh, it definitely is. Right, I'm keeping the coat. Time to get our hands dirty. How do you mean? she said. We'll have to root through all this stuff, see what they've left behind. There must be some small clue about where they've moved on to. We got started right away. There was an office in one of the rooms out the back with various bits of paperwork in, but nothing seemed relevant. It was mostly invoices for various supplies. None of it had Miss Angel's personal details on, or anyone else's. Everything was addressed to Equilateral Incorporated. In the end, after a couple of hours digging through the mess, we found a couple of potentially useful items. One was a folded up doctor's letter resting beneath one of the mattresses. The name of the recipient was Christopher Chaplin. His home address was on there too, so was his date of birth. We also found a blockbuster video card in the back pocket of an abandoned pair of trousers. The name on the card was Tim Steele. No other identifying data other than his blockbuster's membership number. I added both bits of evidence to the box in the boot of the car, leaving everything else behind, other than Dennis's coat which I was still wearing. We drove home. I'm sure we can track these people down, said Jenna as we entered the motorway. What makes you think that? Easy. We've got one of their home addresses for a start, and the other guy? Just phone Blockbuster Video and tell them your friend Tim Steele has gone missing and you're trying to reach his family or something. I don't know. You're forgetting they're both in the same position as Dennis. No one knows where they are. Even a home address isn't particularly useful. Clearly he doesn't live there anymore. Leave it to me, she said quickly. What does that mean? I'll sort it. There's ways of obtaining all sorts of information. Once you have a name and a couple of identifying bits of data, even a Blockbuster's card could do the trick. It's not exactly ethical or legal, so it's best if you don't get involved. Just trust me, I can use this information. Hang on, I said. Don't go breaking the law on my behalf. It's not a matter of life and death. It could be, she said. These guys could be in real danger. They're grown adults, I said. They've made their choice. Dennis made his choice. Maybe we should leave them to it. After all that, she said, we've come all this way. I don't know, I said. It was worth taking this trip, that's for sure. It was cool, looking round that building too. It felt like we were onto something there. It's just, something doesn't feel right. Accosting Dennis's ex-wife, blagging my way into a newspaper office. Sure, it was fun, but this isn't me. This isn't really how I want to spend my time. I understand, she said. And that was that. We stuck the radio on and didn't say anything else for a while. 
A couple of hours later we stopped off for a rest. I decided to take a route through Dennis's box of papers. Something had been stopping me from doing so until this point. Perhaps it was that same feeling that I needed to stop snooping into people's private affairs. I couldn't help myself though. While Jenna was off getting a coffee, I sat in the back seat with a box beside me, turning over page after page of meaningless notes, phone bills and final payment reminders. Then I found a sealed envelope. There was an address on it, but no stamp. My address. I tore it open. The letter was dated 17th of July, 1995. I knew exactly when this was. It was a couple of weeks after Dennis told me that joke about the party. I'd written back with my dishwasher joke. I often wondered why he never replied. This was Dennis's reply. Presumably he'd forgotten to send it, or couldn't find a stamp, or... I read the letter. Dear Frank, I appreciate the gag. It made me laugh a lot. It also made me reflect on my own mortality, but that's not a reflection on your writing. I'm sorry to say it's a reflection on me and my current preoccupations. I don't mean to burden you with my problems, Frank, but I'm sorry to say that I am very unhappy. I remember being your age. I guess you must be 15 now. I remember it well, sitting in my room, staring out the window, sitting at my desk at school, staring out the window, sitting on a train, staring out the window. All I ever did was stare out of the window, wondering what was going to happen next, imagining what I could possibly achieve for myself. The world seemed utterly confusing and deeply tedious. Nothing ever happened. I felt like I was trapped in a waiting room, without even knowing what I was waiting for. All I wanted was something to happen. I'd like to say I got over those feelings, but I'm not entirely sure I did. I've certainly had some good times in my life, but I'm afraid to try and quantify those good times. Imagine how they'd look on a pie chart. Of all the days in my life, how many were truly good days? How many were truly bad? I'm afraid to say the vast majority of my days on this earth have been composed of nothing in particular. Nothing, as they say, to write home about. I haven't written to you for a while, not because there is nothing to say, but because, like my 15-year-old self, I am waiting. Here I am, a 42-year-old man, skint, divorced, virtually friendless, with a memory of a once-fine career fading into the distance. I am waiting for something to happen. I don't know what I am waiting for. It could be a person, it could be an idea an opportunity to do something that will make me feel differently, make me feel alive instead of simply feeling nothing. My name is Dennis Gleeson. I am a 42-year-old man. I am waiting for something to happen. I suppose you don't want to hear about all this. I suspect you will probably never read this letter. I suspect I will keep it in my drawer for a while until I've figured out whether sharing my innermost thoughts with a schoolchild is a productive and sane thing to do. For now, it's goodbye from me. Not goodbye. See you later. Dennis When Jenna got back, I offered to drive the rest of the way. Thanks, she said. Didn't sleep much last night. I could do with a nap. She slept for most of the journey while I focused on the road. I dropped her off outside her house. She yawned. Oh, thanks for driving, Frankie, she said. Thanks for helping, I said. No problem. Like you said, it was fun. 
we should do some more of it soon. I don't think so, I said. Really? I won't go into it now, but I found a letter in Dennis's box. You can read it if you like. It explains a few things. I didn't really know what his state of mind was, I suppose. Turns out he was looking for a chance to escape. That's what Miss Angel's given him. I know, said Jenna. I told you, that's what these people do. They seek people like Dennis out and exploit them. Whatever she's given him, it's not designed to make Dennis's life any better. Your friend has been scammed. We should do something for him. Like I say, I said, he's made his choice. He'll just have to live with it. If that's the way you feel, I'll support you, Frankie, she said. You know I'll do anything for you, right? I held my breath to stop a tear from forming in my eye. You too, mate, I said. You too. Jenna hopped out of the car, fished her bag from the back and blew me a kiss. That image stayed with me for a long time. I don't know why. We'd blown each other kisses plenty of times. It was a thing we did. There was just something about that evening, saying goodbye after our trip and blowing me a kiss in the moonlight. Even after everything that happened afterwards, that's my abiding memory of Jenna. It's been many years since we last spoke, and I have no idea if she's dead or alive. There isn't a day that goes by where I don't think about Jenna. Usually it's just for a moment. A picture, like the one from that night, will flash into my head and be gone again. Sometimes I'll linger over these images a little longer, wondering what I might have done differently or what our lives might have been like if we'd ended up more than just friends. It's time for Jenna to disappear from this narrative. I hope you've enjoyed having her along for the ride. I hope my description of my friend has done her some justice. I hope I'm not just another male writer who's failed in his mission to portray women as three-dimensional people. I'm just presenting Jenna the way that she presented herself to me. I didn't see the full picture myself, unfortunately. She kept things from me. She couldn't be trusted. She took everything way too far and I needed to back well away from her. I just want you to know, Jenna, if somehow you're out there listening to this, that I don't feel angry anymore. And even though I ended our friendship, I wouldn't change you for the world. I think you're terrific. That's all. Oh, and one more thing about Jenna before we move on to the next bit. I've always said that when I ended our friendship, I never heard from her again. Not strictly true. Once I'd made the decision to halt my informal investigation into Dennis's disappearance, I mostly forgot about the whole thing. There were times when I'd wonder what could have possibly happened to make him leave his old life behind, but then I'd remember that letter and the way he'd described his desperation for something else some means of escape. It made a great deal of sense. Of course, there were lots of unanswered questions about Miss Angel, who she was, what she wanted, why she'd recruited Dennis and the others. But I had Jenna now, which meant there were more interesting things happening in my own life. 17th of April 2002 came and went. I spent part of that week searching the internet for stories about Miss Angel's claims about returning to her home planet, but nothing came up. I found this extremely puzzling. Supposedly she'd spent year after year spreading the word in schools up and down the country about what was going to happen on 17th of April, and yet no one appeared to be talking about it. Did everyone forget? Or did the people who remembered make a conscious effort not to speak of it? 
I bought a newspaper on 18th of April, then again on the 19th, in case the press had received any reports about strange disturbances in the sky. Nothing there. I remembered that editor who'd promised to ask around and would call me if anything came up. I never heard from him again. A couple more years passed. A bunch of crazy stuff happened. Back at home, my dad popped out to buy a bottle of milk and never came back. I stopped being friends with Jenna. I went to prison for six months. When I got out, I started asking questions about what happened to my dad. I realised I felt the same way about my dad's disappearance as I did about Dennis's. I didn't want to know where he'd gone. He'd chosen to disappear, which presumably meant he didn't want to be found. In 2006, a couple of years after I'd last seen Jenna, I received a large brown envelope in the mail. Jenna had handwritten my address, so I knew straight away who'd sent it. Inside were a series of photocopied documents with a letter attached to the front. Dear Frankie, I told you I'd do this for you. Better late than never. I realise you've moved on from thinking about Dennis and Miss Angel and all that jazz. It turns out I haven't. I know it's been a long time since we spoke about this, or any, subject. I've been tempted to look into this case in some more detail, pick up where we left off all those years ago, but I wouldn't want to cross that line. As you know, I have a habit of crossing lines. I won't be crossing any with you, Frankie, anymore. Except maybe this one last time. I've enclosed all the information I've managed to gather on our two former cult members, Christopher Chaplin and Tim Steele. That's right, former cult members. The attached documents include their current phone numbers, postal and email addresses. Neither of them appear to be employed by anyone or claiming benefits, which is curious, I guess. Chaplin changed his name to Simon Yardley in 2003 via the regular legal channels rather than the type of methods employed by your friend from the bookshop. Tim Steele is still Tim Steele, but his appearance has altered radically. I'm not saying he's had surgery or anything, he just looks like a different man. Check out the photos. Anyway, feel free to do something with this information. You know, give these guys a call, ask them about Dennis, whatever. Or you could just ignore this letter and continue with your life. Once again, Frankie, thanks for all the laughs. I hope you have a great life. You deserve one. Yours, Jay. P.S. You were right about me. I was to blame for all the things that happened on my watch. I think you know what I mean. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's the footnotes section coming up after the theme song. I can't tell you anything about it. It's only for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Please take a look at my website, frankburton.co.uk, where you'll find The Green Room, a webcomic about celebrities in the afterlife. There's also the Ragbag Rambler video series and much, much more besides. My other podcast is called I Like the Sound and we've got some great stuff coming up on that very soon indeed. I will see you soon. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave. 
When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little love birds. We're not above birds. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, it would be the great event of 1928, dear. Let's misbehave. Welcome to the footnotes, aka Frank's therapy tapes. Obviously, it's it's not a tape as such; it's a digital recording, and uh, but it is therapy, isn't it? As as it turns out, I think over the last few footnotes sections, I've been getting a lot of things off my chest, and I I kind of have been joking in a way uh, by introducing it as the footnote section, aka Frank's therapy tapes. That kind of started as a joke, but it has actually, I think it is the reality of the situation now. Um, so uh, perhaps I, I might just lean into that a little bit more and talk about my feelings. Would you like that? Well, it's what I'm going to do anyway. Now, just a, a note on the sound. Some of the background noises that you might be hearing, the more uh, eagle-eared amongst you. Eagle-eared? What's the oral equivalent of eagle-eyed? What's an animal with really good ears? <laughs> I don't know. Animal with really good ears? Anyone? Maybe eagles have really good ears as well. So it could be eagle-eyed eagle ears. I don't know. I don't know enough about eagles as a species, really. Yeah, you might be able to hear some background noise. I don't know how much of it there is going to translate into this recording. I'm parked up in the car right in the centre of Manchester. So there's lots of people buzzing around. N nobody's paying me any attention whatsoever they can see through the windscreen of my car they can see that there's a guy recording something with a very professional looking podcasting microphone and a laptop into which he's recording it matter of fact a lot of frank and claude following you were recorded exactly like this uh, sitting in the car with the equipment because it was just a convenient place um, to record it and stuff and with that if there were background noises and that, that was pretty good because that just created the atmosphere for that kind of uh, audio fiction work. I mean, the actual background noises that you hear in that series are all kind of added in post-production. But there were certain noises that were genuinely in the background when I was recording that made their way into the recording as well, which is pretty cool. It's mostly set in a van, that thing. So any kind of traffic noises, any kind of passing like people and stuff like that, that's pretty good. That that's um, It's almost like a location shoot. 
isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, here we are. If you hear traffic and drunken people shouting and stuff like that, that that it's because it's because I'm right in the middle of a city as we record this. And I pre- I think it's pretty good. I think it might add some a, a nice kind of background like atmosphere to the footnotes this time. Uh, particularly because I'm going to be talking about my feelings. <laughs> Shall I do this? Shall I actually do this? I don't know if you want to hear it, but generally speaking, I mean, I am I'm pretty happy, you know. Um, I'm happy with the way things are going. I think I'm the happiest that I've been for a good few years, the way that I am at the moment, the way that my life is. Now, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of my personal life. I never do that. I never do that. There's nothing online about my personal life to speak of particularly there are like snippets of interviews that I've done in the past where I've mentioned kind of people who were in my life but I haven't mentioned their names and stuff like that and I haven't really said anything personal about those people I've said personal things about myself but not about the people who were in my life I've got a big thing about that I'm very protective of the real people who are in my life I just don't want to reveal anything about them whatsoever I know that there's plenty of people who, you see, it's a siren, isn't it? You can, you can definitely hear that. You can definitely hear the siren. There's probably going to be a few of those, so watch out for them. No disrespect to anyone who has a, a different view. I mean, there's lots of artists who talk very, very openly about their personal relationships and their relationships with their partners, with their friends, with their children really intimate details of, of their personal lives. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, as a matter of fact, I really enjoy kind of reading these very personal memoirs and stuff like that. I'm really into that genre of literature. It's just not for me. It's just not for me. I, I've, I'm, I'm very, very private and I'm very protective of the people in my life, as I say. That's just the way that I feel. I don't know where that comes from. Probably something in my upbringing that has led me to, to be this way, I guess. And... You know, generally speaking, I'm very happy and I'm very uh, a lot calmer than I have been in recent years as well, I would say. A lot of turbulent things have happened in my life. Obviously, I'm not going to go into any of the details, but things have really kind of settled down. And um, I was saying in an earlier episode of the footnotes that I've started listening to classical music. And I think it's reflective of, of, of this state of calm that I'm in. I think I've reached this point in my life where classical music of matches the way that I feel personally. I've got rid of a lot of stresses and a lot of pressure and it feels like things are going my way. And I think classical music is one of those things that is probably quite difficult to listen to if you're under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure because it just doesn't match. It just doesn't match up with the way that you feel. That's my feeling anyway. I mean, we'll have to see. Next time I, I get stressed out, I'll go try whacking a bit of Tchaikovsky on, see what happens. Might wind me right up, who knows. Obviously, there are small things that get on top of me sometimes. I was, I was talking the other day uh, in one of the previous footnotes section. Maybe it was the last one or the one before that, can't remember. I was waiting for the phone to ring because the garage were going to call me about my car. And not having the car is uh, quite destabilizing and that's one of these fancy um, mental health type words isn't it and I guess a few of you would find that like a pretentious word I think it's a useful word I think it's a useful means of describing that feeling it's destabilizing you feel stable something happens to destabilize your environment 
I actually think it's a really good word, a good, a useful way of describing something. So there you go. I'm going to carry on using the word destabilizing. If you don't like it, <laughs> just deal with it, man. Deal with it. Destabilizing. So, yeah, and I think not having the car is very destabilizing for me. Although I'm generally happy and stress-free, I do have a lot of responsibilities in my life and I have people who rely on me. And I've just got to have a car that works. Otherwise, if I haven't got a car that works then everything just kind of falls apart and I can't do the things that I need to do. So not having a car that works is really quite stressful. Um, so it was quite stressful the other day when I was waiting for that phone call. As you may have been able to tell, I was probably ranting and raving about some, oh, it's a, oh it, it is, here's another one, here's another one for you. That damn Salman Rushdie. <laughs> damn him. Damn him and all his kind. Now, you would have to listen back for the full context for that one. Okay. Don't quote me out of context slugging off Salman Rushdie, please. Anyway, so I got my got my car back from the garage. I had to fix a few things. Pay out a bunch of money to get a couple of things fixed. Tyres replaced, all that sort of thing. Ended up spending more than I wanted to on this thing. And then what happened yesterday, the warning light came on the goddamn dashboard means I've got to take my goddamn car back to the goddamn garage. And, oh, it's just, it's exhausting. It really is. It's its one of those things that I've, I've got other things to do. You know, I've got other responsibilities. Like I say, I've got responsibilities in my life. And I need to be on top of things. And just not having a car. I think it's just the fact that it's completely out of my control. I can control it to the extent that I'm not going to ignore the warning light uh, until the car breaks down. That would be a fairly irresponsible thing to do. If I was 25 years old and a warning light came on the dashboard, I would say, oh, does the brakes work? <laughs> does the car stop when I, <laughs> when I apply the brake? Does it go forward when I apply the accelerator? Can it go into reverse if I put it in reverse gear? Yes. Well, what am I worrying about then? I'm going to ignore the warning light. What's the worst that could happen? You know, and then 25-year-old me would be halfway up the motorway in a car that's on fire, in the hard shoulder, burning to death. That's the difference between 43-year-old me and 25-year-old me, is that 25-year-old me did not have any responsibilities other than responsibility to myself. You know, I had to pay my rent and pay my bills and feed myself. But if you're only looking after one person, then it tends to be a lot easier and you can do kind of okay to do fairly reckless things like ignoring the warning light on the dashboard. It's a pretty low level reckless thing, really. You know, uh, what's the worst going to happen? I guess the car is going to break down and it'll be an inconvenience and that's it, you know. And I wouldn't have bothered having, <laughs> I wouldn't have bothered signing up to any kind of roadside rescue service. I wouldn't have bothered with that when I was 25. I'd be like, well, I'll sign up for one if I need to use it. What's the point of uh, paying a direct debit if I can just sign up for one if I happen to break down? Which um, is actually a fair point, isn't it? Why do you pay the direct debit when you can just do that? Anyway, that's a separate matter. <laughs> now we're getting into um, you know consumer issues. I was really talking about feelings feeling kind of uh, under stress with this and that but I think ultimately if all I've got to worry about is my car breaking down then I'm in a pretty good place I'm not worried about where my next meal's coming from I'm not worried about having a heart attack I'm not worried about what is this 
person going to say, I've got past the point of having to deal with people that I don't want to have to deal with. And a part of that is actually down to me now being self-employed. Oh boy, can I recommend this to you. I can recommend this to you, certainly. I've spent many, many years working in different jobs, working for different companies. Hell of a time working a day job, isn't it? I mean, you know, believe it or not, I mean, I am an absurdly talented man, but I'm not a full-time writer. That is not my main source of income. I do other things besides make money from writing. I make a small amount from writing, but I I don't make enough. I'm not going to pretend that I make enough to support my lifestyle. But I think because I'm self-employed and I, you know, I don't have a boss to answer to, the only people that I have to answer to are the clients, customers. I'm not actually going to tell you what I do for a living, by the way. That is another thing that I'm just going to keep my cards close to my chest on that one. It's, uh, like I was saying, it's, it's a lot more straightforward and a lot easier and a lot less stressful than working for a company where you've got like a set hours and you've got a contract with terms in it and you have to meet all the terms of that contract tick all of the boxes on there and even when you do that you're probably working for a boss who wants you to tick even more boxes piles on the pressure all that sort of thing working for other people i'm really glad i don't do it anymore that's one of those things that i'm really happy about not to rub it in for all you people who work in regular jobs I've been there and done that. I've spent a good 20 years at least working not for myself but for companies. And sometimes it's fine. Depends on what you're doing, doesn't it? Depends on what you're doing. I've I've had some good times. I mean, I do miss kind of working with a team of people who I get on with. If you're working with a team of people who you get on well with and the work that you're doing isn't stressful, I think that's great. I would have happily carried on doing that. It's just that... You know, it doesn't always work out like that, does it? People move on, people move on to other things. You end up working with other people who you don't get on with. And the work that used to be non-stressful suddenly becomes stressful. Sometimes you're a little bit too good at the job that you're doing and get promoted into a slightly better paid and much more stressful position. (laughs) Anyone know that feeling? I know that feeling well. It's not a good place to be in, really. Um, So I think kind of uh, in terms of my work life, I'm very happy with what I'm doing and my personal life in terms of my friendships in terms of the people who are important to me friends family it's all good and like i said i don't i don't have to deal with anyone that i don't want to deal with anymore and that 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 is the great thing about working for yourself that is the best thing but we'll see how it goes i mean it's uh early days with this self-employment thing maybe it'll all go wrong and if it doesn't work out Well, the only reason it won't work out is that I don't make enough money to support my lifestyle. And that may well happen. (laughs) The jury's out on that. The jury's out. But to be honest, um, I am getting quite businessy with the writing stuff now. Uh, It may not seem that way to the outsider in that I'm not doing anything at all on social media at the moment. I haven't been, I haven't touched my social media for months now. I've been busy writing and doing that sort of thing, building up a body of work really. I've only ever really had a token social media presence anyway. I did have a period in which I completely just cancelled all of my social media stuff. Funnily enough, that was the most successful the podcast ever was. The the podcast was doing... When I was off social media, the podcast 
It's doing really well. I have some, some pretty famous guests on. Largely it's due to that really. It's largely it's due to having some kind of famous people on the podcast and promoting it through their social media, I guess. But, but also I, I don't necessarily think that social media is all it's cracked up to be in terms of there are other ways that people can find you. One of the things that I've been doing while I've been not using social media is making my website extra brilliant. There's loads and loads of content on my website now. Frankburton.co.uk. Exclusive content, shall we put it like that? So I've got the Green Room webcomic, which is only available either via my website or to order like a print copy. And you can only order a print copy through my website. So that is what we call exclusive content, isn't it? And there's lots and lots of writings that I've done reflecting upon writing itself. I'm building up this kind of body of online work, if you like. Hopefully what my website will look like in a couple of years' time is that there'll be loads and loads of these little essays that I've written about various different subjects that you can just pick your way through and kind of wade your way through if you're interested in that sort of thing. Particularly on the subject of writing and kind of an analysis of the writing that I have been doing myself in terms of the ragbag books, in terms of the previous kind of stuff that I've written, short stories and what 100, the novel and podcasting. And then, of course, there's the uh, the video series, The Ragbag Rambler, which I would really, really like to make some more of. I just haven't found the time to do it. I've actually written like a second series of that almost. I haven't got around to putting the videos together. It's, it's quite a fiddly and time consuming thing. And that's probably why I've been putting it off, just because it's not the most enjoyable actually putting these videos together. It's not like the most enjoyable thing that I've ever done. But it's, it's um, I think the, uh, the the second series of the Ragbag Rambler is a lot better than the first series. I was watching it back recently and it's OK. It's quite funny, but it, I wasn't really trying to be hilarious, which I, I should have been. I, I think I, I should have really kind of focused on let's just make this funny video series and let's make it really really funny but instead of doing that I decided to just make it a little bit odd (laughs) I was focused on like these little odd details if you don't know what I'm talking about the ragbag rambler is uh, I introduce it as uh, welcome to the ragbag rambler a series in which I Frank Burton explore the world via the medium of Google Street View So it's uh, me visiting a different city for each episode and just kind of presenting you with all of this kind of weird stuff that I found on Google Street View. And (laughs) it is what it is. There's some good jokes in there. I I think the the first series, again, it was more like, here's this really odd thing that I found. I don't know what it is. What do you reckon it is? It was more about me getting to grips with the format, I suppose. And um, for, for I think for the second series, I'm just putting like loads of like really funny stuff in there. There's going to be, if I ever get around to doing it, <laughs> the best one that I've come up with so far is that I come up with a plan to steal kind of half of the like museum exhibits from the Vatican Museum. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll figure it all out. Here's how I'm going to do it. When I wrote that, I, w- I was very, very pleased with it. Well, I mean, but we'll see how it comes out. But I, I think that's going to be very, very funny. And that there's some, there's some other funny bits as well that I can't remember now. So I've gone into kind of self-promotion mode, haven't I? Yeah. What I'm saying is that I'm getting more sort of businessy with 
my writing and in terms of promoting it and stuff like that. I will be doing bits and pieces for social media, but you know, like I say, I'm not 100% sure that I don't want to be spending loads and loads of time putting things on social media that may get a few clicks and may not do. My heart isn't in that. Whereas if I've got a great website that's got good SEO or search engine optimization for the layman, <laughs> it's difficult to tell whether I'm being like cheesy on purpose or whether I, I just am a complete cheesy bastard. Even I don't know. Either I'm a complete cheese ball or saying it in, I, in an ironic way. Which is it? I'd love to know myself. <laughs> but yeah, like I say, um, having a good website with good SEO is my preference for a start. It, I think it's a lot easier if people just discover me through the internet and I don't particularly have to do anything other than keep on updating my website and keep putting kind of cool stuff on my website so that people can find me that way and discover my work via that route rather than social media which just at this point in history 2023 it just feels like it's all going down the pan really i mean twitter's going down the pan I'm not calling it x twitter's going down the pan facebook i mean who really goes on there anymore does anyone go on facebook anymore anyone who's a potential reader of mine i'm not sure that they do or at the very least they wouldn't pay attention to like a facebook ad for a frank burton novel I don't think that's the route that I should be taking in Facebook ads. I don't think I could really get anywhere with that, you know. And what are we left with? In Instagram and TikTok? I mean, the interesting thing is, as well as the Ragbag Rambler videos, I'm, I'm going to be doing some kind of sound video content for the I Like The Sound podcast. You know, there's loads of these things on the kind of video streaming platforms on YouTube and TikTok and all this sort of thing. Instagram to, to a lesser extent, I guess of the sort of ASMR type video content which is kind of related to what I do with the I Like The Sound podcast and potentially it's like a way of getting people in to reading my books but then again I don't think it is really I mean I think maybe maybe this whole book talk thing I could get involved in that just like upload some clips of me reading stuff from the ragbag books perhaps i may get around to that i may not do my main focus is like i say having a good website if you do the research you have a look i mean a lot of authors haven't even got a website or haven't even got a, a decent one i mean even kind of mainstream authors there's a lot of them all they've got as an equivalent of a website is like a page on their publishers penguinbooks.com or whatever it is with a bit of biographical detail about the author and some basic information about their books there'll be a, a link to their social media not every author has like a huge following on social media they have the advantage of being published by a, a mainstream publisher who does the marketing for them which obviously i don't having a good website is a, is essential for me i think much more important than having social media success which isn't necessarily going to translate into sales into actual you know solid book sales which is what i want to be doing from a business point of view i write these books so that i can sell them and what is the best way of getting people to buy these books 
doing the other things as well, going to events, literature festivals, getting the opportunities to get in front of an audience and read my work, which is a really great way of selling books. I mean, if I can get in front of an audience and read a bit of my book, like introduce myself, say who I am, here's a little bit from the book. As long as I got those opportunities to get up in front of people, it always goes down well in terms of I'm quite good at performing my work I haven't got any problems with that side of things the problem that I have is getting these opportunities in the first place and getting myself out there because there's, there's only <laughs> it's only 24 hours in a day isn't there and you've got to do other things in the day like sleep and eat and the aforementioned responsibilities that I have there's a lot of things going on but yeah just so you know I'm on top of these sort of things now whereas I've been keeping the business side of things on the back burner for a very long time what I have been doing is building up a body of work which is uh, you know the ragbag series and other bits and pieces like the green room series as well and of course the podcasting side of things that I like the sound and all that I'm actually in the process I haven't mentioned this publicly before so here's here's an exclusive here's a Frank Burton exclusive for you I'm recording an album of music can you believe it? I'm recording an album of music. And that's going really, really well. I'm really pleased with the, the way these things are, are turning out. It's tied in with uh, season three of I Like The Sound, which I haven't recorded any episodes of the podcast yet, but it's the theme of season three of I Like The Sound is just kind of a documentary, if you like, about following my progress of recording this album. Because uh, the album is basically experimental sound collage, which sounds very weird and impenetrable, but it's not. It sounds a lot more mainstream than if you just describe what it is. You know, it's not that far away from pop music. You know, it's it's weird for sure. It's weird, but it's not so weird that only a few hardcore experimental music fans are going to like it. I think it has some kind of mainstream appeal this thing the name of the artist who is recording this album i'm not recording it under the name frank burton i'm recording it under the name i like the sound that is the name of the artist and uh, that's the name of the podcast that the artist comes from so there you have it i am moving towards i think i've alluded to this previously that i am working towards eventually writing books anonymously which will be nothing to do with the frankburton.co.uk <laughs> I'm building this, uh, building up this body of work as Frank Burton. Once that body of work is complete, the mission for the Frank Burton side of things is just to promote those works, promote the green room, promote the ragbag books, promote the podcasts, and promote I Like the Sound, all that sort of thing. I Like the Sound is is going to be continuing as long as I feel like it's worthwhile continuing with, which uh, it definitely is at the moment. And I've definitely got my eyes on recording a second album, the difficult second album, which will be a very ambitious project, actually. But I, I won't go into <laughs> I won't go into the second album. I haven't recorded the first one yet. Give us a chance, and yeah, I'll be I'll be doing things online to promote that. Really, got my work cut out, haven't I? But it is very exciting. I feel like I'm on the verge of something. I feel like I'm on the verge of kind of breaking through. Basically being nowhere at the moment in terms of I, I don't feel like anybody knows who I am at the moment. Obviously a few people do. Obviously there are people who listen to this podcast, for example. 
and obviously you're listening to it now. So when I say things like nobody knows who I am, it's not strictly true, is it? Because you do. Hello. <laughs> right, I think I've spoken about that enough now. I'm going to have a look at the footnotes, uh, which is why we're all here, of course. You've been waiting on the edge of your seat, waiting while Frank Burton talks about his feelings or something and then rabbits on about his website for a while. You're waiting for the footnotes. That's what you're here for. Let's have a look. Uh, Tinder sticks. Very briefly mentioned Tinder sticks. Uh, I was wearing a Tinder sticks t-shirt in one of the scenes. And seriously, if, if you are not familiar with the works of the band Tinder sticks, definitely check them out. I think it's fair to say, and I don't mean to insult them in any way, I think their material from the 90s is certainly the stuff to start with. I don't know whether they've split up again or whether they've just gone quiet for a bit, but they reformed a few years back and started recording stuff again. And the, the new material is absolutely great, don't get me wrong. I think their, their new material is great. I was hoping to go and see them live, as a matter of fact. Oh, do you know what happened? Covid. That's what happened. <laughs> so maybe they'll be touring again. Who knows? I don't know. But really extraordinary band. If you've not heard them, I don't know how to prepare you for them. I'm going to be talking about Nick Cave in the next episode, that very similar, aesthetically speaking, uh, to Nick Cave, although they have a very different sound to Nick Cave in the Bad Seeds. The lead vocalist is a guy called Stuart Staples, who has this really extraordinary vocal style. Very, very recognisable vocalist. If you're familiar with Tinder Sticks and you know you hear that voice, you know instantly who you're listening to. Is a really extraordinary, um, uh, and uh, I've never heard another vocalist who really sounds like this and really has this kind of sting singing style that Stuart Staples has. And it's certainly not for everyone. I mean, it's one of those bands, you know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about when you say this. You get really into a band. You get really kind of, oh, it's really amazing. I've got to tell other people about this. I've got to play these records with somebody else. And you play these records for your friends and they absolutely hate it what the hell is this <laughs> you know <laughs> i've certainly been in that position with tinder sticks play a tinder sticks record for someone and they're like what's going on with this guy's voice what is wrong with him <laughs> you know why is he singing like that why don't he sing normally what's wrong with this guy uh, <laughs> it does take a while to kind of get used to. As a matter of fact, before I got into them properly, they were on the John Peel show on Radio 1 in the 90s, and uh, I think they, they must have done a session on John Peel. And I didn't fully understand what I was listening to at that time. And it was John Peel, as a matter of fact, who introduced, and it was quite rare for him to do this, because he would usually just play all this kind of really weird music and just present it as though it was perfectly normal, like it was the perfectly normal thing for him to be doing. That was part of the appeal of John Peel, I think, was that he had, he just had absolutely no qualms. He didn't prepare you in any way for what he was about to play. He, he would just play it, and then you have to deal with it yourself. But he made an exception, I think, for Tinder Sticks, and he said when he was introducing this session that, you know, he, he said, listen, I know this sounds a bit odd, but you've just got to give it a chance and once it gets under your skin, trust me, it will stay there. And it really, really does. Once their music gets under your skin, it's really hard to let them go. <laughs> it is. It really is. Certainly my favourite album of theirs. And it's purely in terms of 
the number of times that I played it, I played it so often. At a certain point over a couple of years, uh, in the late nineties, when I played this album probably daily for quite a long time, <laughs> and it's uh, it's brilliant. It's so atmospheric. It has a real kind of theatrical quality to it that indie rock generally doesn't have <laughs> much of a theatrical quality to it, does it? Uh, I should tell you the name of the album. The, the name of the album is Curtains. So Curtains by Tindersticks. That is the one to start with, I would say. That is your gateway drug. There's loads of, uh, I think they've done about 10 albums altogether. So go for it, man. Go nuts. What else? What other um, cultural references were there? Reference to Tony Hancock. Of course, if you don't know who Tony Hancock is, again, it's one of those things you really need to check out. Just type Tony Hancock into Google, please. If you don't know who he is, it will make your day. I feel like when Jenna says to Frank that because he's wearing this trench coat, he looks like Tony Hancock. I feel like Tony Hancock did wear a trench coat quite, quite a lot. That's only based on my own recollection of seeing uh, the Tony Hancock shows. If you watch clips of, of like the, the famous blood donor sketch, he was wearing a trench coat then. <laughs> I believe he was. <laughs> but this, I, don't, I can't be bothered to check whether he was or not. I think that the fact that Jenna refers to Frank as looking like Tony Hancock, even if Tony Hancock never wore a trench coat, I think it's a good comparison. <laughs> Uh, the reference to Blockbuster Video, let's not go down the route of, uh, oh, remember Blockbuster Video? Oh, remember that? Oh, nostalgia, remember that? No, let's not do it. Let's leave it alone. So there's a reference to the ending of the novel Getting Away With It, in which Frank and Jenna's friendship effectively comes to an end. If you're not familiar with getting away with it, we haven't spoiled it in any way by revealing any of the circumstances as to why their friendship ended. But let's just say it ended, and that's uh, you'll have to read the book in order to find out exactly what happened. It's really, really good. Their friendship doesn't necessarily end for the reason that you think it is going to, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Now, this thing that Jenna says right at the very end, I am responsible for everything that happened on my watch. That is a reference to getting away with it as well. And <laughs> that is, uh, I reckon, even more than the candy floss machines Easter egg. <laughs> this is the best Easter egg that is in the whole series, I would say. It's a really great Easter egg, this one. Great Easter egg. <laughs> I feel quite confident in using the term Easter egg now. This is, this is what this is. This is a, a really, really perfect Easter egg. I won't spoil it. If you're intimately familiar with getting away with it, you will know exactly what this means. But I don't want to spoil it for everybody else. There is, in Getting Away With It, which is the second ragbag book, two books ago, effectively, there is an unanswered question at the end of the book. That's pretty much everything gets tied up nice and neatly at the end and all the questions that you had earlier in the book all of them get answered really nicely I think but there's this one question that is outstanding that never gets answered and with this kind of cryptic clue that Jenna has left in this note to Frank at the end of this episode uh, I am responsible for everything that happened on my watch that answers that question okay so I'm not going to say any more about it because it's just the Easter egg to end all Easter eggs, this. <laughs> and I think it's great. It's really good. So 
uh, check out getting away with it. Let's see, uh, it's been another long section. Actually, not as long as, as some of the previous ones were. But some of them were pushing on for an hour. We've done around about three quarters of an hour now. It's just uh, definitely time to wrap it up, isn't it? You know, we've all got other things to do with our lives. And uh, yeah, let's just move on, shall we? I hope you've enjoyed all the background noises. Like I say, I don't know how many of them you've heard. But uh, it's possible that I'll go straight on and record the next footnotes if I can gather all the footnotes uh, together in time with the time that I have available to myself now. So I'm literally going to press stop and then I'm going to figure out what the footnotes are for the next one. And then, yeah, if I've got the time, I'll just record the next one. So I'll... (laughs) I'll see you next time, but really I'll see you in like five minutes in my time. Yeah, see you later.